0: Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter three. Faith involves saying no at times. Faith involves drawing lines and standing against what you know isn't right and doing so no matter the consequences. Daniel chapter three is this ancient story of this quiet resistance that quickly became a a public spectacle. And it remains a powerful example to us today of faith that requires resistance. Now, church, God has chosen to give us stories uh, to help us walk out our own story, stories like this found in Daniel chapter 3. And they're, they're meant to be carried around in our hearts, in our minds. They're masterfully written. They're divinely inspired. And so let me encourage you to try to hear this story as if you've never heard it before. And maybe you never have heard it before. But if you have, try to listen to it as if you've never heard it before, and, and know that it's, it's for you to take and to run with. And so let's explore it together, beginning in, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, "'You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages,' that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We'll stop there. Father, we ask that as we explore this ancient story, that you'd give us eyes to see that by your spirit, you would move and speak, that you'd put your finger on areas of our lives that we need to get right, Lord, that you would graciously open our eyes to all that you have for us, that you would bring bring us to places where we are inspired and encouraged and filled with a renewed faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, three points will help us walk through this narrative today. First, there's a proclamation to bow. Second, there's the decision to stand. And third, there's deliverance in and not from the fire. First, proclamation to bow. Let me give you a little history here. The story is, is set years after Babylon's attack on Jerusalem or the nation of Judah. And this is the 6th century BC. Babylon is the world power. Uh, the majority of the people of Judah were taken into exile. When I say exile, think captivity, deportation, and assimilation. And so among this group of exiles were four men from the royal family of Of David, of King David. You have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four men were taken in um, that exile. In chapter one, they're selected. uh, They are actually the smartest and the strongest and the most handsome men of Judah. I imagine I would have been a part of that crew. I don't know for sure. Probably would have happened. There's nothing I can do about it, but um, they were selected to learn Babylonian culture they were selected to learn Babylonian tradition and history and to eventually serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and they're pressured from the start to give up their identity. Chapters 1 through 6 tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors and to serve the nation that they find themselves in while at the same time standing firm in their convictions. And that's difficult. And King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image and there's this sevenfold emphasis now, I mentioned the names of these individuals, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, that was their Hebrew name. And their names were actually changed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were given Babylonian names. And so what we find here in chapter three is that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image. And there's this sevenfold emphasis that this is what he's done. We see this in verses 1 and 2, 3, 5, 7, 12, 14. He has set up an image. It's repeated again and again and again. This is a, a, about a 90 by 9-foot 9 image just plated in gold. And this, this image must have had this massive base holding it up. I don't know what it looked like. I imagine maybe something like the Washington Monument. But whatever it looked like, it represented power and control. It represented dominance. It was a representation of Nebuchadnezzar's control in his reign. It was a symbol also of Nebuchadnezzar's defiance. And here's why. In chapter 2 of Daniel, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar has a nightmare. He has a dream that very much disturbs him of this, this image the statue of an individual whose head is made of gold, whose, whose chest and arms are made of silver, whose thighs are bronze, whose legs are iron, and whose feet are a mixture of iron and clay. And none of his wise men can tell what the dream means. And so he's going to have all the wise men killed. What a guy, huh? And then Daniel prays to God for the interpretation of this dream. He then goes to Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him the dream. He tells him the interpretation of the dream. And and, and he says, this statue represents the various kingdoms, the first being yours. You're the head of gold. But others will come after you, representing the silver and the bronze and the clay. But then there's this rock that's cut out, not by human hands, that destroys this entire statue turns it to dust, and this rock then becomes a mountain and covers the whole earth. And this rock represents God's kingdom over every other. And so I believe what we have here in response to this, this nightmare, this dream that was rightly interpreted by Daniel, is Nebuchadnezzar's defiant response. Oh, I'm the head of gold that's going to be crushed one day by others? I don't think so. Nebuchadnezzar's making a public statement Now, that the unity of his empire was going to be rooted in the common worship of this image of gold. Now, what better way to unite an empire made up of conquered lands and people from every nation holding religion and empire together? Okay, so polytheism was common. The worship of multiple gods, many gods. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying his gods, they deserve ultimate allegiance You can worship your gods, that's fine, but you have to worship mine as supreme. Okay, now remember, do you remember the series in Genesis? Genesis 11, when we learned of another tall structure in the plain of Babylon. A tower, the Tower of Babel. In the same plain, actually. And that tower attempted to unify the human race. It was a defiant attempt to make a name for themselves as a lasting legacy to their own glory. It was a defiant attempt to try to find meaning and purpose and identity apart from God. That's what that story was about in Genesis 11. And so here we are in the same plane and another uh, image is being put up. It's a symbol of rebellion and defiance again. But it's as if we have the reversal of the scattering from that plane of Babel Here we have men of every nation made in God's image told to bow to an image made by man. This is idolatry. This is a created thing that Nebuchadnezzar says is the ultimate thing. And he calls everyone to bow down and worship. And we might look at stories like this and say, oh, come on, Darren, we don't struggle with idolatry. We're not bowing down to man made objects. Are you sure? An idol are, is any, is, is a, could be a very good thing that becomes the ultimate thing in our life. I want, I want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 1. It helps us understand our own struggle with idolatry. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And Paul writes this way about idolatry in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's what happened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Here's what they did. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what idolatry is. It's worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. And guess what oftentimes ends up in the center of our lives? What created thing? Ourselves. Very, very good things like a job, or like money, it's not a bad thing in itself. Or like sex or a relationship can become the ultimate thing in our lives and become an idol. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 3. The event has all the pomp that you would expect. The list of musicians is repeated. It becomes a little funny to the reader. Like, okay, all right, all right, we get the point. There's a lot of musicians here playing some instruments I'm not familiar with. But there's, these are literary features that heighten the tension of the story. All the bigwigs are there too, everyone with power and position. We have governors and commanders and officials. And if you notice in verse 4, then the herald proclaims out loud, this is what you must do. You must fall down and worship this image. This is the proclamation, the proclamation to bow. And then in verse 7, there you go. They bow. Imagine the scene. Nebuchadnezzar looks over the sea of people that stretch across the plain. They're bowed down and worship at his command. Imagine the satisfaction that he felt. It was momentary, though, it didn't last long. Because what we have in verses 8 through 12 then is what I like to call tattletale astrologers, these are tattletale mystics, these are Chaldeans. These were Babylonian men by birth and most likely were part of the wise men, uh, the mystics or the, the, the astrologers of, of Nebuchadnezzar's um, um, leadership. And, and they viewed themselves as the superior race. They were jealous of the Jews. And, and they were more than willing to bring their quiet rebellion to the king's attention. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could not bow to this image. And these men noticed this. And so they bring this quiet rebellion to the king's attention. Now up to this point, the three, they're not yelling. They're not protesting. They're not looking for a fight. It's a quiet rebellion. They couldn't bow to this image. They held position in Babylon. They took on Babylonian names. They spoke the language. They served the king. They are not insurrectionists. They're not trying to create a political revolution. They're not posting all over social media. We're not bowing. But they had to draw lines, and they had drawn lines, this far and no more. You see, they understood certain passages that they had been taught, and they were directed by and shaped by these passages, ones like Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. And turn with me to Deuteronomy, another passage that would have been ringing in their hearts and heads. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It goes on to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They couldn't bow. Now, these verses I just read to you, and there are others, these weren't just simply memory verses for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they grew up with, went to Sunday school, and they're like, okay, yeah, I remember those verses. These weren't just memory verses they learned as kids. They are center of their lives verses, right? The exile couldn't take it from them. Babylonian names couldn't take it from them. Here's what they longed to do. They, They longed to honor the Lord in the midst of a culture that wasn't their own, even as they served this culture that had led them into exile. But it meant honoring the Lord meant far more to them than their position or their security or their reputation and even their life itself, as we'll see in a moment. Do you have verses that shape you? Do you have truths that you've, you look to again and again that center you? Do you have verses that you've committed to memory it reminds you of what's most important. Now, of course, in order for that to happen, the word of God needs to be both reliable and authoritative. You need to see it as that. But when you understand that the word of God is both reliable and authoritative, and when you look to it for what it is, God's word, you know, and when you begin to treasure what you find there, uh, that it's the revelation of who he is, and he's, in, he's revealed himself to us, that we can know him, Becomes sweeter and sweeter and we treasure it all the more. So what are you centering yourself on? Does God's word matter? Does it hold sway over your life and authority? Here's what we're learning here in this story. Faith in God requires resistance. It requires resistance. It requires saying no, drawing lines. God's word draws lines for us. God's word should hold sway over every power and authority. Does it? Does it? Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is that grace? The unmerited, undeserved favor of God has appeared. When when Christ took on flesh, when he became what we are, human, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live a perfect, obedient life in our place and to die a substitutionary death for our sins. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, rescue for all people. And this grace, if we let it, if we see, it trains us, it teaches us. Grace this unmerited, undeserved favor of God, we become a student of it, and it teaches us to, to do what? To say no, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but also to say yes, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life when? Right now in this present age. As we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you might say that we have this waiting room existence here that we're waiting for Christ to return, and and we are. But we don't wait like... like, uh, as just kind of doing nothing as we live, as we give ourselves uh, to our vocation and to our family and to our city. Uh, This waiting looks like saying no to certain things and yes to other things. It looks like drawing lines and resisting and pushing against the ungodliness and the worldly passions that come at us. And it looks like saying yes to a self-controlled, upright, and godly life now, here and now. And how do we walk in this? Is it just like willpower? Mm, I got to try harder. We learn, we're taught, we're trained by grace. You see, the more we, we, we lean into the grace of God revealed in Jesus, the more that grace shapes us and transforms us into a holy people because we realize this favor that we've received, this love that we've been shown, this grace that we've been given, it's undeserved, and it begins to shape us, and then we want to be, uh, we want to be obedient. We want to walk in his will because we've been transformed by his love. You see, it's his, it's his love and grace that compels us, that shapes us. Are you being shaped? Are you being taught? by grace, to say no to things and yes to other things. Now, you, you might say, man, this is new to me. Uh, I've not actually even thought about living for Christ this way or I've not been taught it, and that's okay. It's good for you to hear this. It's good for all of us to be reminded that we need, as we walk out our faith in Jesus, to walk in resistance. We need to draw lines and say this far and no more. And that's what we have here in this story in Daniel. Second, we see the decision to stand. Let's keep reading this this story. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of all those instruments, (laughs) to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see, their quiet resistance quickly becomes a public spectacle, doesn't it? Surprisingly, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to set up this private ceremony with these three men. And give them another chance. I think it speaks of their position on his leadership team of some sort. This isn't their first encounter with King Nebuchadnezzar. But he's still furious. And in verse 15, it makes clear what the two options are. That there are no other options. And so Nebuchadnezzar, feeling challenged, challenges their convictions and their God. Now, I ask every time I read this, hey, where's Daniel? We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happened to Daniel? I know he's not bowing down to this image. We don't know where Daniel is. Maybe he's off on official duty somewhere. We don't know. But verse 15, we see this uh, Nebuchadnezzar say, who is the God who will deliver or rescue you out of my hands? Now, don't forget that question. It gets to the heart of this story. Nebuchadnezzar clearly struggled with megalomania. This is the delusion of one's own power or significance. It's a symptom of a manic and paranoid disorder. His arrogance, his pride eventually leads to a mental breakdown, to insanity. See that? You can read it in chapter 4 later on today. Now let's just pause for a moment and remember who these three men are standing before. The greatest king on the earth. The most powerful and oppressive government of the day. They are respectable, but they are clear. There's no need to put up a defense, but there is zero hesitation. Did you notice? They say the God we serve is able. He will rescue us from your hand, but if not, if he doesn't choose to, in other words, how could we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that saving us from being reduced to ashes is actually God's plan? We don't know that, but we will not serve your gods. We will not worship or bow down to this golden image. Now they recognize the possibility that God may not choose to save them from the furnace. Now, and I love this. You know, they say, but if not, and, and the NIV tra- translates it this way, but even if, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't save us out of the furnace. Now, can you say that? Can you say, even if he doesn't heal me, Even if he doesn't give me, even if he doesn't answer me, can you say that? What if God doesn't do for you what you want or think or desire? He's not ours to control. Can you say with faith, even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing, I'm looking to him. Somehow, some way, he'll see me through. The three are an example of tremendous courage and conviction. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't crush their faithfulness. He couldn't win. He underestimated their trust in God's word and the deep conviction that they, they held in the power and presence of God. That is what fueled their resistance. Their deep conviction in God's presence and power. Mm, what if we move forward that way? What if we move forward with a deep and a deepening conviction of God's presence and power? You know, as we move forward as a church community, my prayer has been since the beginning of the year that we would be increasingly dependent on the Spirit of God, mindful of God's presence every day. God the Spirit present with us, empowering us to walk out all that he has for us. And what if we move forward that way, mindful of his presence and power, And that's what we have here. It's what fueled their resistance. Now, the three knew exactly what the image stood for. They knew exactly what was at stake. They knew what faithfulness to Yahweh required. They understood the cost, and they had considered the cost and all the consequences, and they stood their ground. Do you understand the cost of following the God of the Bible? Do you understand the cost? Have you considered the cost of what it means to bow your life to Jesus Jesus talks that way all the time. As you read the Gospels, consider the cost. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Are you willing to lay your life down? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's response, well, we know what it's going to be. He's not going to be like, oh, good. I'm so proud of you guys. Bravo. No, he's furious. Let's keep reading. We see this in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats or turbans, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. The satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men and the hair of their heads was uh, not singed, their cloaks were not harmed and no smell of fire had come upon them. Yeah. Yeah. Last point. Delivered in but not from the fire. Nebuchadnezzar's order, he orders the furnace to be as hot as possible. This is underlining the impossibility of deliverance. He commands the strongest soldiers to tie the three up. He keeps the three fully dressed, turbans and all. It's all happening so quickly in verse 22. The guards, the men who tied up uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they die from the flames that hit them as they throw them into this furnace. The furnace is large. Maybe it was used to help build the image that they were told to bow down before. Maybe it was used for executions, but they fell into it. And so it obviously had an opening at the top. Maybe there was a second level, a large opening at the bottom where you could view and access whatever was inside. And you think after these three are thrown into the furnace, that's it, the end, lights off. What's the next story? Who are we learning about next? They're done. They stood firm, but they died. But that's not the end. Nebuchadnezzar jumps to his feet in amazement. He can't believe what he's seeing. Four men, not three. And all four walking around unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, he says, it doesn't look like the others. It looks like a son of the gods. Is this the angel of the Lord? Is this the pre-incarnate Christ? This is God's tangible presence with them in the fire. He didn't keep them from the fire, but he was with them in the fire, and he brought them through the fire. Carry that. Hold on to that. He didn't keep them from the fire, but he was with them in the fire, and he brought them through the fire. The fourth man entered the furnace. Church, Jesus entered our broken world. He became human, He became what we are to stand with us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his being. He stepped into the furnace of our broken world to rescue us, not from the fire, but in it and through it. We hear passages of scripture that bring great hope and have brought great hope to God's people from the beginning where God promises, I will be with you. His name, Yahweh, means he who is. You could translate this as the ever-present God. So his name reveals his presence. You see, it's his presence and power that fuels our faith and resistance. I will be with you. And just as I told you earlier, I can, I can face the world with Valerie by my side. If I know she's with me. But even more than that, if I know God is with me, it, it, I could face anything. And so I'm reminding myself, God, you're with me. You're present. You empower your children to walk through the fire. You're with us in it. Jesus himself said, I am with you always to the end of the age. He said this. He promised this in Matthew 28. So remember verse 15 and the audacious audacious statement that Nebuchadnezzar made? Who will save you from my hand? That's what he asked. Well, verse 25 answers it. Verse 25 answers who will save from his hand, the God of Israel. These three men knew one way or another that rescue was certain, be it in life or death. How God would do it was not for them to decide or to know, right? They faced this furnace not knowing what the outcome would eventually be, all the important officials who had gathered around and bowed before the image are now crowding around the three who are out of the furnace. Not a hair, singe, they didn't even smell like smoke. Now listen, church, you know when you go camping, you smell like smoke. All right. You light a fire and you smell like smoke the rest of the time. They don't even smell like smoke. This story in Daniel 3 is not a message that God will save every faithful person from suffering and death. It's not what this story is about. God does save. He does rescue. He does deliver. But here this story is calling God's people to faith that requires resistance. It's inviting you and I to walk by faith, to demonstrate courage that grows out of conviction, conviction that's rooted in God's word and in his promises. Are you doing that? It reminds the reader. It reminds you and I. The greatest king on the earth is no match for the eternal God. I pray this encourages your hearts. I pray this gives you a renewed vision of what it means to walk by faith. I pray that it it, it stirs you up and helps you to see there there may be some areas in your life that you need to say no to, that you've been saying yes to there may be some things that you're doing that you've you've caved in or maybe you didn't have those convictions before maybe you're you're leaning on a personal belief system where you are actually calling the shots instead of bowing your life to king jesus it's dangerous our faith in christ can be kind of relativized just kind of put in a in a pile along with other belief systems Or we we become uh, just those who come up with a God of our own imagination and we, we slap the label of the God of the Bible on him. Well, Jesus wants me to be happy. Have we learned what Jesus is calling us to? And are we willing to draw lines regardless of the consequences? Well, the story ends with a new proclamation. A new proclamation limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. They got raises. (laughs) Well, okay. There's a new proclamation given. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with their God but he's not convinced. You see, he's still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego but he does say this. There's no other God that can save in this way. And so this new proclamation is the exclamation point at the end of the story. It's what we're meant to ponder and to think deeply about and to meditate on. There is no other God that can save this way. And so faith, it involves saying no at times. Faith, it requires resistance and drawing lines and standing against what you know isn't right. It requires doing so no matter the consequences, knowing that God is with you. He's with you. There's no other God who can save. He's with you. He's proven it. Jesus is the proof, church. He stepped into our furnace be with us in it and to see us through it let's pray father we thank you so much for your faithful presence in our lives expressed by your very spirit and we thank you lord for how you've shown us your love and grace through your son jesus we thank you that we are not alone as you call us to faith you call us to a life of resistance You call us to a life of saying no and drawing lines. Help us, Lord, to stand firm in the convictions that we see in your uh, the truths that we see in your word. Help us, Lord, to to believe that you've you've called us to be trained by your grace, to be shaped and taught by grace to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to an upright, self-controlled life here and now as we wait for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we live that way, Lord, for your glory, regardless of the consequences. In Jesus' name, amen.